I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1976. The album is Derek and Clive Live, the artist Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And my guest this week is Jim Piddick. Thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Um, so you picked, well, a number of, you gave me a number of options to go from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and all ones that I love. I mean, I grew up listening to Billy Connolly. That's the first stand-up I ever listened to. Uh, so I'm glad I, I was tempted to. But we've never, I've been wanting to cover this insane album for a long time. In eight years on the podcast, nobody's picked it. Even though people have then talked to me about, you know, we, we should have done Derek and Clive. It's like, yeah, we should have. Um, so I, I, I'd like to know where you heard this first. I was at university, London University, and uh, I was always a big fan of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm-hmm. And not only, but also uh, Beyond the Fringe, Behind the Fridge. Um, mm-hmm. And then they came out with this, uh, which was kind of groundbreaking. I mean, it, listen... I realized it was around the same time that the Sex Pistols were happening. Oh God, right. So it was kind of the punk of comedy. Yeah. It was just so outrageous, so in your face. Uh, they were clearly very, very drunk when they made it. Uh-huh. Uh, and both Peter and Dudley were great improvisers. And as drunk as they were, it's still alarmingly funny. Uh-huh. And it still makes me laugh today, um, you know, whatever it is, 40-something years later, uh, as much as it did then. Which shows how much I've matured. <laughs> and for those who aren't aware, I mean, it's pretty simple. They're just one, usually two man, just two man sketches. There's a couple just songs or limericks. Basically, one of them is almost a limerick. Uh, where these just these two drunk Englishmen get together and play. Either they're do they I, I, other than just Derek and Clive? I don't know if there are names to some of the other characters or not. I'm no, really they're not. They're sort know. of stock characters that they used to do. I yeah. mean, Peter's kind of upper class, kind of, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, uh, and then there's there's a couple of tracks which are recorded in front of a studio audience, uh-huh. which were more scripted. Um, the blind sketch, which is just a great gag. It's, mm-hmm. it's tasteless as hell, but um, <laughs> there's nothing about the album that's tasteful. It's Probably the most politically incorrect. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. And I think we were talking about earlier. There's one other that, of all the tasteless stuff, I think it, it could all maybe pass a little bit. Maybe. But the yes. the, the Bo Dudley one does not. Oh, boy. It, Although there is one joke that made me laugh really hard on it. Which was what? Which was, uh, they have their soul singers and we have our soul singers. Oh, our soul singers, yes. <laughs> I liked that joke a lot. Yes. Uh, but the rest of it's really uh, disturbing. Uh, which is too bad because I like to listen to Dudley Moore play music. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> that song, Jump, the last track, uh-huh. was my audition song when I left drama school. Oh, my God. Because I can't sing. I'm uh-huh. musically challenged and mm-hmm. uh i wanted something that was speaky singing yeah, okay. you know, like a kind of <laughs> rex harrison but obscene mm-hmm. uh and that that i did and, and i actually got a job off it uh wow after leaving drama school singing jump um which i i can't remember what i did yesterday but i could still remember that entire song really yeah. <laughs> I, it's amazing I mean, it really is, uh, I was just thinking too, it is the vinyl version of The aristocrat- Aristocrats. It is, you know, God. It, if anyone's seen that film, it's... They're just trying to top each other left and right and just say the dumbest, like, the premise of the first thing is that one of them's worst job ever was pulling lobsters out of Jane Mansfield's ass. Yes. A premise that has not been covered before. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> but many times since. Of course. Yeah, naturally. I mean inspired so much comedy i am wondering what the because the thing is peter cook did not i mean he's over here people if you're a comedy person you know who he is yeah but outside of that you know of the two everybody knew dudley moore at some point well dudley became a hollywood star which yeah. rankled peter no end i'm sure uh by then he was a full-time drunk as opposed to a part-time he mm-hmm. was uh mm-hmm. he was a professional alcoholic by mm-hmm. then um and, and i mean peter was Probably you talk to most people in comedy. Uh, I know my friend Eric Idle is a huge, good, good piece of name dropping there. Uh, <laughs> Eric is a you know, was a massive Peter Cook fan, mm-hmm. and, and Eric's you know a few years older than me, and I think Peter would have been a few years older than him, and he followed him I think Cambridge, and uh, he was I think amongst comedy circles of certain generations he was regarded as the standout genius. Mm-hmm. I mean he was extraordinary. Right. And then it got a little dulled as he got older, and the drink started to take 
uh, hold. But he didn't give a... I can say anything I like. Absolutely. He didn't give 3,000 fucks. Uh, <laughs> and even when he was kind of knew that he was going to die of alcoholism, because they basically, the doctor said to him, um, you have to stop drinking or you'll be dead within a year. Oof. And he said, fantastic. Oh. He said, that's, that's uh, the way I want to go. Um, and I think he lasted more than a year. But even in the later years when he was fairly coherent and bloated, he would be calling in radio stations as this mad Swedish character who, who kind of wanted to talk about current issues. Oh, my God. Um, and, and that was, he just lived for, for, for comedy improvisation. Right. And writing. Jesus. It's, it's, it's always weird when you see these, when you see uh, two, two people grow up in comedy together and then when the divide is there, it's sometimes so extreme and severe. Yeah, I mean, excuse the slurping, by the way. I'm drinking tea as I'm talking. Um, I, uh, I think there was a rift for a while. I mean, Peter was kind of open in his, his envy mm -hmm. uh, and would give Dudley shit the whole time about having sold out and gone Hollywood. Uh -huh. But if Peter could have done it, he'd have done it in a heartbeat. He tried to. He did a TV series with Elaine Stritch, um, a bad sitcom. Uh -huh. um, actually, it wasn't that bad. Uh, and he tried various efforts to kind of be, be a part of it. But Peter was a rebel, and he, he didn't ever want to be kind of considered part of the establishment. Right. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet either one of these gentlemen? I did. I did. Um, Dudley, I did a production of Beyond the Fringe in 1986. You did? Okay. Which is right. about 10 years after this album came out. At the Old Globe Theatre in San Diego, and then we brought it up to the LA Theatre Centre, of which I was a, an artistic associate at the time. And I, I was kind of a ballsy young guy, and I wrote to Dudley and said, you know, are you interested in coming to the opening? It would be great to, to have you there. And um, about two days later, I got a phone call. Mm -hmm. I, and it was Dudley. Oh, hello. Oh, I'd love to be there. Yeah, thank you very much. I'll be there. Oh, my want, you know. God. And um, so he came along and um, was charming. He was delightful. He was so uh, supportive mm -hmm. and um uh, and kind about the production, which was very good. Paxton Whitehead was in it and directed it, and he had taken over from Jonathan Miller in the Broadway production, okay. Beyond the Fringe. So Paxton knew it very well, uh, and it was a very good production. Uh, and I, I played quite a lot of Peter's parts and um, and a few of Dudley's. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah, so that was the one time I'd kind of really interacted with him, and then actually got to know his uh, one of his one of his many wives uh, later. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have? Uh, on this album, is there a favorite particular bit of any of them? Um, well, I, I, I obviously like Jump because it, it has uh -huh. a, sort of, sort of a special thing. I, I, I think the first side is better. Yeah. Um, I think the the worst job I ever had. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, there's the sketch, Squatter. Yes. Squatter and the Ant, which <laughs> I, I think is, is great because that's Peter doing his... When I was you know, yes. the, the colonial um, squatter, do you remember Squatter and Ross? But what I love the most is Dudley just interjecting. Yes, <laughs> I know. Yes. And every time, because Peter would always lead. He was definitely the leader in this in the mm -hmm. improvisational dances, um, and and Dudley would just come in. Uh, and I just love that for about three or four minutes, all you hear Dudley is going yes. <laughs> No. Oh, God. God. Yes. Yes. No. It was fantastic. Oh, God. So uh, I, that was always... I mean, I just think the outrageousness of it mm -hmm. um, you know, in the laugh, I mean, again, just, <laughs> just uh, shocking stuff. If you've not heard this album and you're a comedy person... Right. And you, uh, if you like the aristocrats, you'll love this album. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying because I can't think of anything else that came out at the same time, uh, English or otherwise, that was this. That was anything remotely like this. Because improv, the the last great improv albums were probably Nichols and May. Yes, which one is on I the mean, wall, absolutely superb. You know, and those were. And and to be fair, the, the, what you hear in the albums is polished from improv, right? Yes. This is be this is literally just two drunks sitting down and just. But very very funny. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Of creative. course. Of course. It's remarkable that it sounds as polished as it does for given. Yes. You know, given what who they were and what was going on in their lives at the time. And what I love too is the how they do it with such conviction, yes. even when you know they're just improvising drunk. 
and it's so committed and very straight. And then there's barely a single sketch that they can get through without Dudley falling apart. I know. He was one of the world's greatest gigglers, rather like Ricky Gervais. Mm -hmm. And he literally, you can hear him dying and not able to breathe. He's laughing so hard. Mm -hmm. And that is charming in itself. It, it really is. But and of Peter course. just c continues absolutely straight-faced. I know. Never, ever. He never, ever would break, which is fantastic. I, I mean, there's there, like, you can hear, when you hear the manner of improv, too, it, I'm trying to think, what was I just thinking of that reminded me of this? Well, I've completely lost it. But there is, like, a, clearly a lot of love in the room yes. between the, these two guys, because just to also be willing to go along with, like, the premise where someone's going to clean up. I think this was the sort of part of their getting back together and reunion when, mm -hmm. when Dudley had already become well-known. Right. And and they kind of got together and they made their peace and went out and, and had a lovely meal and got very drunk. And then, of course, they did it again several times afterwards. And I think there were three albums that followed, two mm -hmm. or three um, Derek and Clive albums, which were just not good. Okay. okay. They were not good. I mean, I... I, I there may be the, the odd moment, but I remember listening to a couple and going, okay, no, this was a one-off. They caught it lightning in a bottle once, and yeah. it didn't really work again. Now, the other thing that was fascinating looking at this again, because I hadn't heard it in years, was seeing the executive producer, Chris mm. Blackwell. Who, I don't know who the name. Chris Blackwell, he's now 82. Uh -huh. He founded Island Records. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, was managed, I mean, great, great people. Mm -hmm. um, and he basically put Bob Marley on the map. Wow. And I went to Jamaica last year for the first time, almost exactly this time last year, and stayed at Goldeneye, which was mm -hmm. the James Bond, where James Bond was written. Yeah. It was Ian Fleming's estate, and it's now owned by Chris Blackwell. Okay. Because Chris has lived on and off in, in um, and, and he has a, a sort of residence on the, it's now a big hotel, I mean, that you can stay in the, in Fleming's house, and there's lots of little cabins all around. It's an amazing resort. Uh -huh. And Chris was there, and I had dinner with him one night, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, it was amazing to listen to the stories of, of, of his life because he, he literally has seen and done it all. Uh -huh. And uh, he was talking about Bob Marley and how um, he was always into reggae. And he, he'd heard him but hadn't met him or seen him. And so he signed him and released his first record. And he heard, misheard the name over the phone. And he released the record uh, under the name Robert Morley. <laughs> now, if you know... Anyone who knows English kind of acting history, Robert Morley was a very, very large kind of Alfred Hitchcock type actor. <sighs> Big, very large, bald actor. Um, very, very English, mm -hmm. um, Robert Morley. Um, and uh, that, there were about 500 copies that are apparently worth quite a bit now. Wow. Until he was corrected and, and got his name right. <laughs> That's amazing. But uh, yeah, so Chris Blackwell. So that was kind of bizarre to see that. That's yeah. very funny. Yeah. I, it's very strange when you see, like, for instance, uh, one of the reasons people say that Cheech and Chong caught on is because Lou Adler was producing all their albums. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and I don't know a ton of, that's the only times, by the way, when I ever know of a music producer is if they've worked in comedy. <laughs> yeah. So now I know. They're, now I've learned another name. Yeah, my uh, guess is that, that, that they just recorded this. At, at Peter's house or whatever, uh -huh. and um, and then you know uh, one of them must have had a. I, I'm sure Peter actually knew knew Chris or Dudley and right. said, "Look, do you want to release this?" Right. Ireland was at that time super hot. They had you know so many great people. Mm -hmm. um, half my record collection from that time is, is Ireland. So you still have all of your old records? You keep them all? I around? do. I, I've got all my LPs. I brought them over from England. I, I've lived in this country for almost forty years. I brought them over a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And they're all in pretty good condition. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have... So what were some of the... If you were going to pick a Billy Connolly album, what was there one well, you had in mind? I, I mean, I've got so many. I just adore Billy. Yeah. And, um, uh, I've worked with him a couple of times and um, sort of known him socially a bit. And he is one of the greatest comedians that's ever lived. Stand-up yeah. comedians. Yeah. And he's also one of the only people I've ever met who at a dinner party, you will be happy to just let them take over. You know, some people dominate and you go, oh, shut the fuck up. Just, you know, okay, we get it. <laughs> Billy is someone that everybody in the room would just happily sit back and mm -hmm. let him go. Um, and the same, you know, I run into him at Starbucks in Studio City and, and, and he would hold court there just talking to anyone oh and God. making everybody laugh. And he's an introvert, complete introvert. He mm -hmm. loves just fishing and playing his banjo uh, in his spare time. But, but, 
I mean, there's, the body of work is so phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It'd be impossible to pick anything. Uh, truly, I think the greatest stand-up in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, no I mean that's I and I I've had to compare every stand up I've heard to uh, heard since that uh because that's the first stand up I ever heard that was where I had to learn to navigate around an accent for the first time, you know, because yeah, yeah. I and so I, I think I probably listened to it I probably it was the pick of. So it was just a best of that came out in like maybe around the same time this came out even or the early 80s. Yeah. And I probably listened to it 30 40 times just so I could figure out I don't know what that word was. I don't know what that word was. Oh, there's probably still a few I don't know. Have you ever seen him live? I have not. Oh, amazing. Uh, I amazing. I've seen it probably half a dozen times uh, and never, ever gets old. Yeah. Never gets old. And he he kind of circles around things and it's never quite the same. Um, he, he has a structure, but mm -hmm. he, you know, he admits, oh, oh, I got lost there. I'm going back there. <laughs> um, and it, that's what's so great about it. And again, he's he's actually a great giggler too. He kind of cracks mm -hmm. himself up, which is always amusing. And he started out as a musician, though, right? If I'm not yes, mistaken, yeah. a musician, and uh, he was worked in in the shipyards, yeah, in Glasgow, um, and was was yeah, he made his name as a as a banjo player. It's so weird because I mean that is like a over here it's a super common thing where there were of a period, and he's obviously a bit younger than this, but of a period there was there was all these folk singers who just were doing jokes in between their music, and yep. then all of a sudden the music just faded away. Is that right? Yeah, it's huge. I actually just helped uncover the true identity of this one guy who nobody really cared about, but nobody also knew what his real name <laughs> right, was. Right. So I dug through and dug through to find out what his story was. And yeah, that's very super common. It was Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what, so a lot of folk clubs became comedy clubs eventually. Wow. Yeah. How amazing. But he's got that story, but just separate. That was just his life. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. People would say, you know, he'd be in the pub and they'd say, God, they'd be falling around. So, you know. <laughs> and, and and as you say, his his patter between the songs <sighs> became more than the songs. Yeah. And then he he still, when he was touring as a comedian, used yeah. to do a bit of music now and again. They're great. And then after that, it was like, no. Just, mm -hmm. I mean, I can't think of Wellington Boots without singing his song. I mean, so, I mean, it's it's a, hard, it's a little yeah. hard not to. Yeah. Uh, what what are some other comedians you grew up listening to or watching? Well, I loved uh, Barry Humphreys, his uh -huh. character Dame Edna Everidge. Yeah. And Dame Edna actually got a start in England at Peter Cook's club, the establishment. Okay, okay. Um, Peter uh, ran this small club in in, um, in the West End, Soho. And... Um, and and gave Barry his chance to test that character out. Wow! And in those days, it was not Dame Edna Everidge; it was just Edna Everidge, housewife. Mm -hmm. And it was a character that, um, again, comedy people will know, has endured for four decades, right? Five decades, probably. Mm -hmm. It started in Australia, and uh, Barry just kept expanding on it. Mm -hmm. And still, I don't know if you've ever seen him do that. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I grew up seeing him on television and specials here and there. Yeah, yeah, great interview shows. Uh -huh. But he's he's done three or four shows here in, in the Amundsen. Or, mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, again, I mean, a, a master. That, that character is extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. What's your own comedy history? Have you ever done stand-up or anything like that? No, I've never done stand-up. Uh and I have never had a huge desire to. <laughs> I'd like to do sit-down comedy. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I, and I, I, I kind of am thinking I might do a show that's just sort of sitting on a stage talking. You should. Rambling rather than uh, <laughs> standing up telling jokes. Um, it's an odd thing. It's a very, I think it's a very specific type of personality. I started out as a kind of comedy sketch actor. Uh -huh. And then moved into, obviously, with the Christopher Guest films, improvisation stuff. And so my... I always like to hide behind characters, so I never liked the idea of sort of exposing myself for ridicule. Mm -hmm. um, I'd rather have the, the character I'd created ridiculed. Oh, yeah. Um, and even then, when you don't get laughs and you're supposed to, it's quite humiliating. <laughs> but I couldn't have, I couldn't have borne the thought of me being, you know, rejected. Uh, and, you know, some of them... Are, and I, I'm of the introvert school of, of actor. I'm not, I'm not sort of a born extrovert. I don't go around sort of dominating parties uh -huh. um martin short who is much more of an extrovert uh -huh. um and a showbiz kind of compulsive i asked marty the same question i said do you ever do stand up because he's so yeah on always and he's happy to dominate any situation and he said i tried it once he said i got up i told got halfway through the first joke and someone in the front row stood up and threw a pint of beer in my face oh. 
Christ. He said, I walked off and never looked back. So even, I mean, if it scares someone like Marty Short, Uh uh, I don't feel quite so bad. Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely, it's to me, every time I have a stand up on, I I try and dig into what the hell makes them want to do it. And it's not a thing you can necessarily pin down as to one particular, but I couldn't do it. No, it's, it's pretty, I think most of them will say they take a good five to 10 years to hone it, Mm. to get it right. Yeah. And, and get, and every single one of them has died a thousand deaths <clears throat> yeah. in front of an audience. I think you also, it's a, it's a personality type. Uh, mm-hmm. and with, you know, of course, you generalize. But I think a lot of stand-ups are either manic depressive or that they have this sort of absolute need mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. And an awful lot of them are, uh, are in that category of manic depressive. Right. Um, and again, not all, but, but sure, sure. it's a definite personality type. And I, listen, my hat is perpetually off to all of them. I, I think it's fucking amazing what they do. Yeah. Whereas I can do improv and not think about it, you know. Yeah. What's, what was your, okay, you, you say that that's kind of where you got your start doing improv was those movies, but did you, had you done any before? Um, I'd done a few, a little bit at, at college, bad improv, uh, <laughs> just sort of. So when in doing review shows, we tried a couple of sketches where we sort of said, well, let's just wing this. And it was fairly disastrous. Uh-huh. Um, and then I didn't really do any, I didn't really do any, um, when we have an improv class at, at, uh, drama school. And then I kind of went into more legitimate straight acting, Uh doing Broadway and stuff and almost always comedy. Um, and then out here in sitcoms and stuff. So it was always scripted. And then when, when, uh, Best in Show came along, which was, uh, 1999, we shot it. So you know, I'd, I'd been established really more as a straight actor. Yeah. Mostly comedy, but occasionally I'd do drama. And so that was being thrown in at the deep end with, with Fred Willard. <laughs> and luckily, you know, I was playing the straight man. So for me, my mandate was to be as real as possible. Uh-huh. And to do the sort of Dudley Moore, just, just chirp in and years. <laughs> um, and and kind of let, let uh, Fred drive it mm-hmm. and be the lead dancer. And I would just kind of ping in and out. And it, it luckily worked. It was a chemistry that worked in that. And, um, and then I kind of grew in confidence in terms of, okay, I can do this. And then I sort of started to, as, as we progressed doing those films and then the C- TV series and stuff, mm-hmm. I, I became a bit more sort of uh, proactive rather than reactive in terms of my improv. Right. And now I, I love working. I mean, in, worked with... Um, uh, Various filmmakers, um, Judd Apatow and, and Nick Stoller, and people, where they let you, they encourage you to do the script first and then do an improvised version. Right. And a lot of people do that now because, you know, I'm associated as as are all of Chris's kind of troupe, that they kind of are looking for you. You know, if you even if you go into right. a sitcom, it's like, um, I guess not the not the full camera, but but the sort of the more um, single camera stuff and films they, they love you to just go have a run where you just yeah riff around it and that's fun that's fun i i can only imagine um so all right so you first you first heard this this album in college yes um university we yes call university it. thank you yes. I, I was gonna say it but then people are gonna call that's me out right. for being a, a prick Tomato. Um, if i say it then i'm a prick Vitamin. you see what i'm saying yeah <laughs> <laughs> um did you okay? And you said you heard all the other albums, and they're just not as good, which is too I didn't hear bad, them all. I heard too, a couple. You, you heard a couple, okay. Um, and I got to be honest, uh, it was like, okay, yeah, you, you guys, um, yeah. I, I kind of one thing I, I've always kind of had a good sense of is when to get off the stage, you yeah. know. And yeah. uh, I felt that they they'd done that 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 thing and, and captured it once. But this still this still gives you. I mean, you still said you laughed pretty hard at it absolutely yeah absolutely uh, i mean there is that one sketch called bo dudley yeah which is staggeringly racist uh-huh but uh-huh. even in that it's 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 um it's not offensive in the sense that oh my god that's just really uh demeaning right it's more because there's much of that most of that sketch is actually making fun of the people who are Racially insensitive. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, of a English kind of uh, snob um, uh, elitism that, mm. that just don't understand American black culture. Right. So they're just making asses of themselves. 
On the other hand, there are some throwaways there that are like that you wouldn't get away with that today. Right. Right. Um, and and that's that's the only track that I went. Yeah, that doesn't quite hold as well. And, and even at the time, to be honest with you, it was my one of my least favorite because it was the longest. Okay. I thought it outstayed its welcome at, at ten minutes. Yeah, um, that's true. But it's it's very funny. I mean, and it kind of does build um, in its absurdity. And I just love that they're so simple. It's just two guys on, in, in a room on a mic. Just, yeah. And that's there's something about that. Was this one of those things? Did you just listen to it on your own, or did you listen to it with friends? Um, I, but both. Mm-hmm. And, and there's definitely a, a, a you can say a line from it, and you know immediately people will pick it up because sure. it's one of those things that if you've heard it, you can recite an awful lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a lot of friends who are my generation and who certainly who certainly know that it's sort of like Monty Python. You know, there are people that you just you say one line and they'll come back and you do the whole sketch. StolenDress.com is proud to present Of Dyson Dens, a D&D podcast starring Navia the Centaur Fighter El Oshana Fiznik the Warlock Grin, good putts What's his name? A time-traveling cowboy And your dungeon master, me, Dan Join us as we fight wolves So the green light leaves your fingertips enters the face of the wolf and then it explodes Explore creepy places. The fog gets thicker as you walk toward the building. Suddenly a giant claw emerges from the fog and grabs at you. It dissipates as quickly as it appeared. This will all burn off by noon. And generally keep it classy AF. Y'all don't need a shave, corner. <laughs> oh. Oh, well. <laughs> Did y'all shave my corner? So visit odndpodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Did you listen to or watch a bunch of Monty Python at all? I did. I, I would say they were probably the biggest influence on my, my career and life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I was at school when it first came, uh, and then throughout college. Uh, I, I, actually, by the time I went to college, they might have even split up. Okay. Um, and I loved it. And I, even at the time, I knew that the shows, the weekly half hours, were hit and miss. Yeah. And that's what I loved about it. It was so innovative. Mm-hmm. And again... It was so. I mean, they've they been compared more to the Beatles of comedy as opposed to what I described Derek and Clive as the the punk of comedy, uh-huh. the the Sex Pistols of comedy. Um, and they really were. And and I, what I loved though was that it wasn't polished and and it was so smart, so silly. And there was nothing in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that was what I, I I love and what I've tried to sort of strive for ever since is is that middle ground is boring to me. Uh-huh. Uh, I like really silly really uh, smart and, and, and quite vulgar. Mm. And, and, and I love that. And, and I would say, you know, sometimes it would be 50% of the half-hour episode that just didn't work. Yeah. But it was still clever. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, they were my heroes, you know, growing up. And then in, uh, I suppose, about 20, God, 20-something years ago, I ended up in a film with Eric Idle. Mm-hmm. And um, we had, I think, about 17 scenes together with... Naomi Campbell, the three of us. All right. What? How? What? How about that for a, uh-huh. a group? And um, Eric was quite reserved, mm-hmm. and uh, as I said about him when I'm working usually. And then, as as the kind of time went on, we sort of started to kind of feel each other out, and we both realised we have very similar backgrounds, uh-huh. and we made each other laugh, and to the point where we got to we just look at each other. Mm-hmm. And nothing was said, and we'd start laughing. That's fantastic. Uh, and we shared a love of <clears throat> sport, cricket, and um, soccer particularly. So we'd start watching games together. And and since uh, I, I, you know, we spend time in France every year together now. And, mm-hmm. um, he's become a dear, dear, and his wife, dear, dear friends. So, uh, so what you're saying is you did not instantly start quoting himself to him and, and no, not at all. No, okay. no, I was, I was really intimidated. <laughs> and the first time I met him, I went up and I'm just, you know, a huge fan of Python. And it's just great to meet you. I'm really happy about working. And he just looked at me and went, Oh, thank you. Um, and then sort of disappeared. And, and I thought, Oh, fuck, it's one of those. It's just, uh. oh, it's awful to meet your heroes. But the ultimate, it just flipped very, very quickly. And, and, um, He's one of the great people on this planet for me. I can only imagine 
having by necessity to be reserved if you were him just to make sure everybody didn't immediately think you were his best friend yeah you know? i think so like for quite can be quite gregarious i mean he's uh -huh. sort of more, more of a, an introvert loner like me but he he's he's can be very gregarious and and sort of um and and feed off of, of social situations um, but he's a very very kind man and a very generous man and, and we we've worked together many times um since and uh, it's just one of the cherished, valued sort of friendships of my life. Did you listen to the Python albums at all? Of course, okay. absolutely. Because I never absolutely. know. Some people have never heard them. Oh, no, I listened to them, and I saw them live at Drury Lane oh. in, in London. And uh, obviously the films. I mean, the films are, are, are extraordinary because they, they're very, very together. There's not really a bad moment in most of those films. Mm. They're very tight. I mean, but they had to be. 90 minutes, you can't afford to i mean the first one was a sort of compilation of sketches from the tv show and it's again yeah uh but it was the best stuff mostly um but that that, that, that were they were experimenting and they mm -hmm. you know the, the the definition of experiment is that it, there's no such thing as a failed experiment because otherwise it's not an experiment mm -hmm. yeah um it's it's supposed to fail or pass and, and that's why you're experimenting but the films are great i mean holy grail is 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 brilliant and then obviously eric's adaptation for for broadway and mm -hmm. spamalot was very very successful and wonderful um but they all are and even um uh the meaning of life which because life of brian is probably my favorite uh -huh. that's an extraordinary film but but the meaning of life i remember seeing a preview in in new york when i was working in the theater there and and john cleese hosted this kind of premiere and and even he said afterwards oh it's a little bit woolly isn't it which in english terms means it's there's a bit of too much in you know it needed okay. trimming but and I, and I thought at the time yeah they, this mostly works it was sort of 80 percent mm -hmm. and, and maybe they did after that trim some but now when I watch it I go it all works yeah there's not much in there that I go oh, okay that doesn't didn't quite that hit but it's it's and if you kind of dip in and out of it it's it's a bit like the kind of austin powers films mm -hmm. it, it's fantastic if you just come in for 10 minutes uh -huh. or 15 minutes and then pop off again and then you know it's it's just it really holds right um you know it kind of blows my mind i just like to let people know this is that when their first album producer who i've interviewed on the show um, he was 17 when he started producing their albums. Who's that? Uh, Andre Jackman. Wow. Uh, he still does sound for movies all the time, but like he produced, I think, starting with their second album, every one of them. And what kind of blew my mind was when I interviewed him and he said, yeah, and then there's this line from one of the songs in Life of Brian and I'm like, and, and this line got cut and I'm like, so you're telling me that you probably just got a box of like outtakes from python he's like yeah somewhere probably and i'm like oh god i want i want to hear them wow <laughs> these all have to come out somewhere you know I, I want i want so badly to hear them is there absolutely i like to when i've got english guests on i i do like to know if there's somebody who has never made it over here that that we should know about that maybe had an album maybe didn't but yeah there's a plenty i mean yeah. there's tons jasper carrot mm-hmm you may or may not have heard of. No of them, yes, but Jasper Carrot was was at one stage almost as big as Billy, or probably as mm -hmm. big uh, from Birmingham. He's got that strong accent like that, and he talks like that. And he he was ge a genius. And I had an album of his, mm -hmm. um, and then he sort of became more of a straight actor after that. Uh, so, I mean, there was a lot of parochial old style northern comedians mm -hmm. who were more off the kind of genesis of the the music hall mm -hmm. vaudeville circuit we've um, talked about george formby on the podcast once. oh george that's formby. the that's that's the as obscure as we've gotten Ooh. because i didn't know anything about him until the show so really yeah oh george formby i mean still held in huge mm -hmm. regard um yeah i, I mean there, there were so many even the new wave of comedians in the 80s mm -hmm. uh david Badil and all those i mean there's tons and tons of people frank skinner david Beale. Uh, all those alternate alternative comedy people from the 80s and 90s I, I don't think an awful lot of them have not made it over here right i mean the steve coogans and uh and people like that have um and obviously more recently ricky gervais uh, what's weird though is how if you come over here the, the adaptation to how we do things is insane because steve coogan could still go back to the uk and do all the alan partridge he wants yeah it doesn't. I don't think it makes sense to anybody here. They they never saw him, you yep. know, as that character. It's just insane how it's. I mean, and 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 good for them. I think you should be able to keep this stuff, 
that makes people happy there yeah, yeah. if you want. Um, cause it, it just, I mean, I think, I feel like it's almost the same with Ricky Gervais. If he, if he were, uh, he could just strictly do, you know, stuff over there. Although I guess every time he does, it's going to get sold to HBO and he's going to be fine. <laughs> well, I think now the crossover is easier, but with yeah. the Netflixes and things like that, um, what used to be sort of the domain of, 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 uh, PBS, um, is now kind of wider. I mean, mm-hmm. dramas always travel better. Yeah, comedy, uh, particularly English comedy. A lot of English comedy on television is pretty parochial, mm-hmm. um, and and I think they're starting to realize, you know, with shows like Catastrophe, and, mm-hmm. that you can actually cross the Atlantic. Um, I did a sitcom. I wrote, I created a sitcom in the nineteen ninety nine. I think called Too Much Sun about two Brits living in Hollywood. <laughs> with Mark Addy and uh, Alex Jennings and, and Lee Majors was actually in it. Was really? Regular. Um, and it kind of, it fell a bit between two stools. Mm-hmm. It was, looking back, it was pretty broad. Uh, it was it, It's not the way I'd do it now. Uh-huh. Um, but but it, it, uh, there's some funny stuff in it, but but I, I still, f- I feel like it was too soon almost you okay. know, for people yeah. to really understand the two cultures. It's much easier now. Yeah. I think people... It's still slightly kind of elitist. I mean, I don't think, you know, British humor plays terribly well in the Midwest or, the you know, right. the r- rural South. Um, but then, you know, I would say probably vice versa, true. I mean, American comedy does travel a bit better, I think. Mm-hmm. You, can you think of a good reason for that? Well, I think it's you're playing to a bigger wider audience so america if you if you're funny in america you you, you you're funny to a much bigger okay. slice of the world mm-hmm. so i think you're you know and and i think the brits are more au fait with uh uh american television uh-huh. american humor i mean so many sitcoms are on british television which is not the true and the reverse sure i mean the fact that benny hill for years <laughs> And Are You Being Served were the two shows that people knew. This comes up so often. Were extraordinary uh-huh. because they were considered, I mean, Benny Hill was beloved, but, sure. but, but it was always considered cheap, low-end humor. Yeah. And Are You Being Served was considered crap. It uh-huh. was absolute shit. Um, but funny. I mean, sure. you can, the endless Mrs. Slocum pussy jokes that still make me smile. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, but they, I don't know why that worked. Yeah. That that is a mystery to me because yeah. that's totally parochial. Benny Hill, I get because it's much more visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Python, I get, sort of, why it hit a certain educated, you know, elite audience. Yeah. But it was, uh, it's definitely getting easier. Right. It's getting easier. I, I will say, I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast, but I would happily um, settle for um, having just a broad enough appeal to make it in England and just get the fuck out. I mean, out of here. Yeah. Meaning, you know. Because, really? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Although, maybe not with Brexit. I said that a lot more before Brexit. So. <laughs> well, I think a lot, you and a lot of people. <laughs> I, I remember being so upset. I'm like, oh, Brexit, so sad. I'm like, God, you, you poor people, you've done this to yourselves. And literally months later, yeah. Trump. Well, they, were, oh, they wow. were clearly connected. I mean, yeah, we, I don't, know. we don't want to get onto that. No, we don't. But both, it just we'll both start <laughs> swearing and, and uh, smashing the place to pieces. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, they were very similar. It, it, uh-huh. You know, very similar um, farts in the face of humanity. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> have you have you ever done this kind of improv, or would you would you sit down with somebody who you thought you really clicked with and do wouldn't have to be Derek and Clive, but your own thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, usually it's sort of someone you got to feel like you have a kind of chemistry with. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, it's dangerous. I mean, I think I'd yeah. play around with it first and see. But yeah, I mean, the idea of doing like a podcast or a radio show with somebody else and just for three or four hours r- going anywhere, yeah. rambling, being serious if you want to, being funny if you're not, just ranting about the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now at this time in my life would be fantastic. Yeah. Because I, I, uh, there's so much to rant about. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I get angrier as I get older. And in a funny way, that's probably, you know, anger, if you can turn it sideways, is, is funny. Sure. Um, I, I, I didn't care so much when I was younger. I was too self-involved. And now I, I care more about the world. So, <laughs> um so yes, no, that would be that would be. Uh, I actually have thought about that um, in the last few weeks. Yeah, but that might be fun or months. Um, yeah. You've been here since 1981, is that right? Very good. Yeah, I came over in January 1981. 
Um, so it's a large chunk of my life. I mean, and I, I actually just bought somewhere in London, so I'm spending more time in London. I'm splitting between here and London now, mm -hmm. um, sort of going, circling back in the third act of my life. And I love being there, uh, and I'm working there more than mm -hmm. I used to. Because um, for the best part of three or four decades, pretty much just worked here and occasionally would pop back and do a film or right. TV show. But now I'm sort of interested in doing both and um, I have a lot of family still back there and my beloved football team. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'd like to... It's a, they complement each other perfectly, LA and London. Sure. Did you? Did it change? Do you, do you know how your perception of comedy or your, your thoughts on comedy might have changed by being here? Do you have any concept of that? Yeah, I think... It's wider. It's much wider. Yeah. Uh, it has to be. Um, I think it's wider as you, you sort of grow older and you're exposed to different forms of comedy. I mean, I'm still innately British. Sure. So I still uh, gravitate towards that type of humor um, and, 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 and funny British people. But no, I very much appreciate uh, so much and I've worked with so many great American funny people. Mm-hmm. That, that I get it, you know, I think more than I would have. Although I remember sitting in a almost empty theater at college slash university, <laughs> watching Animal House and laughing out loud, mm -hmm. literally out loud, or seeing a matinee and there's maybe two other people in the cinema and thinking this is really fucking funny. Yeah. And so I think I've always got it mm -hmm. and appreciated it. Um, but I would say it's probably wider. I think I now know more what I like and don't like too. That's fair. Yeah. And what what I kind of I can see through things a bit, you know. As mm -hmm. you know, if you you know you, when you see how the tricks are done, mm -hmm. you kind of become more critical in a way. Right. Um, I think it's actually perfect to talk about this in that case because this is the most stripped down version of there's there's so little there beyond just the words and yeah. and, and voices these two characters are doing. Absolutely. Yeah, how do you? How, I'm just fascinated. At your knowledge. Of, mm -hmm. Have you always been comedy uh, fanatic? I've always loved comedy, but I mean, because of this show, I mean, especially early on, a lot of people complained when I would say I don't know a lot, where it's like, oh, I, because I literally am here trying to learn, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so, which is why I've gone out of my way to try and get more women, try and get more non non Americans on the show. Yeah. Um, and I mean, my parents grew up forcing English stuff on me, so that's another reason why I love English comedy. Comedy abuse. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Including Are You Being Served, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like I'm also Real obsessed. Comedy abuse. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So I've tried to like spread my wings and like get a little bit of this and that so that anybody who's listening to this who they're chiefly American, I figure, you know, let's give them a little something that they're not used to hearing. Educational. Yeah. Your I show is both a, educational and mm -hmm, entertaining. A little bit, except for you know, again, if I say I don't know, what's and why? Going on. Why did you choose vinyl as the starting off point? You know, because I most other than that Billy Connolly tape, all the almost all the comedy I listened to growing up was vinyl because my mom yeah, just gave yeah, me yeah. her records or gave me my grandmother's records, including a ton that are on the wall are were from my family. Yeah, and it was also like my this is my uh, retroactive justification for it. It is the first time you could share comedy because yep. you know not everybody had a tape player even or a tape a cassette player yet even. Like in the 50s and 60s nobody had a, a cassette. So this is how you could share something you it's, loved. It's got to be a generational thing cuz most of our introductions were possibly through television to a degree, but that mm -hmm. was more structured written. Mm -hmm. But stand-up-y type comedy mm -hmm. has to be through records, cassettes, DVDs. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I think, a few years younger than me, but that, that has to be general, because now, what would your first exposure to comedy be? Right. It's I, I don't know. YouTube. YouTube. Yes, you're right. It or, would be you know, YouTube. Maybe some TV, but TV's all online now, so you don't need But it's TV. not oral. Right. Strictly oral. Yeah. And I don't mean that enough. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, and that, there's something about just listening. Mm-hmm. That is very different because you can't get laughs with faces or you know funny, sure. playing off the audience, and and so I think your appreciation when you're just listening becomes slightly different. Yeah, and absolutely. you really learn those. I mean, most people know those albums quite well yeah. because you're young and you're listening to them five hundred times. Yeah, I mean, I know so many people that said that all they listened to was Woody Allen mm -hmm. you know, stuff, and so one's first exposure, uh, which is yeah, very very different now, and it's much more disposable now. I think. Yeah. Well, I was a young teenager just before broadband internet was even a thing. So just before. So I had CDs, right? But right. 
But all my experience with Python, even though I could have watched it if I tried hard, was the albums, which is I, why I love the albums about 10 times more than the show. I love the show. But for me, I love the albums because I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. They're so produced where they, they and, and they're also done a few years after they did the original sketches. We're like, well, maybe we can improve this and make this sound better or richer. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than, frankly, you know, cheap TV cameras. Like, yeah. so yeah. they did the best they could, but they, they had a lot more opportunities to make it sound better. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it. I, I definitely had this stuff that I, I could still spread around. I made my best friend through comedy, through comedy records. So, huh. you know, yeah. that's also a big part of it. Yeah. So yeah. I always ask, hey, did you share this with anybody? I always like to know if you made comedy friends or not, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. interesting to me. It's it's fun to talk. People say, you know, you can't dissect comedy. And it's, you know, it's, it's awful when people try and analyze it. And I think it's really interesting. I, I mean, do too, obviously. <laughs> and talking about it, you know, especially technically for somebody, if you're working in it, I worked with a young actress, oh, she's now probably 30-ish, uh, called Lizzie Kaplan, who's mm -hmm. a terrific talent. And she was quite young when I worked with her. She was probably in her early 20s. And I was just blown away by her knowledge mm -hmm. of comedy, uh -huh. particularly British comedy. And she's now, of course, married to an English actor. Mm -hmm. So she also was an Anglophile to a degree. But I was so impressed because, you know, she's what, I don't know, almost 40 years younger than me, but she knew all the people I knew. And That's fantastic. I was really, and I, th I think it's a, it's, it's, it's really, brilliant that that, that that that's gone through generations and and, and it, it really kind of makes me optimistic yeah well we're, we're i think we're gonna hit a point here where pardon me sorry i don't know what's wrong with my throat here uh but growing up my parents generation and people who were pumping entertainment into my home were desperately clinging on to the 50s because um they were afraid their childhood was dead uh, i feel like i'm gonna be the kind of person who's gonna be clinging on to stuff like this if only because there's so much more exponentially every year yes so i'm going to be holding on you know a keeper of a flame even for the bad stuff but yep, mostly yep. for the good stuff i hope and yeah it's a weird little parallel well i think i think you it is comedy in its purest form i mean i i, I I, I, I like Ricky Gervais, but yes. he's very much a Marmite, which in England is love or hate. Uh -huh. Marmite is uh -huh. a horrible thing. I actually learned to love it, but uh -huh. it's, uh, it's one of those. And uh, Ricky's, I still to this day think his radio show uh -huh. is the best stuff. And his stand-up is great. Yes, yeah. Um, as opposed to scripted stuff. And, and, and the radio show is the purest form. I need to hear that. I've it's never very, heard It's very, very okay. good. I mean, and they're all on, available you know, mm -hmm. to download. Um, and they go back now at least 10 years. Um, and, and, and my exposure to Adam Sandler, for example, mm -hmm. I was sort of like, the films left me kind of, okay. Uh -huh. you know, I, I thought they were fine. I didn't, again, another person who's Marmite. Yes, you love him or you hate him. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I thought that his, uh, I listened to, that was then cassette. And I thought, oh yeah, this guy's really good. Those are really, really insane, good. insane, but they're very well put together. Oh, they're yeah. very funny. <laughs> And, but you sort of it distills the essence of a I think a comic talent, mm -hmm. which which uh, the films and TV shows don't. Right, yeah. that's fair. Um, this album, if you're going to tell yes. people why why to listen to it, maybe they don't know who either Peter Cook or Dudley Moore are. Uh, what's a good reason to give this thing a listen? Well, I I think because it not just because historically it was like, wow, this is so uh, outrageous at the time it's it's genuinely funny and and um i think if you're a fan of improv yeah you can see you know people say oh it's you know as soon as you go blue you've 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 you know you're taking the easy way out mm -hmm. I, i've never bought that no because people can be really funny without being disgusting and they can be really funny being disgusting yeah so I would say, it, it, as I said, we, we mentioned, it's the aristocrats of, uh, of vinyl. Um, and, and, and if you also, if you listen to this, you should go back and listen to Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Not Only But Also. Yeah. Uh, I think those are available, the audio. The, the tapes, the BBC, astonishingly, have destroyed a lot of their old tapes that they had. Uh... And they lost them. And, and the, But you can, there is a, you can get on... Um, DVD or download, you can get the best of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's not only, but also, and they had some amazing sketches mm -hmm. on the TV show. But but the, the, to me, they were, you know, two of the first great comic talents that I remember. What's insane is I forgot, I don't know how we got this far without mentioning, there is a sketch where basically every other word is cunt. And, oh, absolutely. Um, cunt. 
Um, and it's one of the funniest things in the world that shouldn't be. Well, it, it, I know, and it's it's the one <laughs> word that's taboo now, still yeah. in this yeah. country. In England, it's not sure, and it hasn't been for a long while. Yeah. Um, you know, people literally use it almost as a term of affection. Oh, yeah. cunt. How are you doing, cunt? All right. <laughs> oh, don't be a cunt. Um, but it's oh, it's a lovely word. But first of all, it's, you know, the NT is always good. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's, it's, and it it's, goes way back, Shakespearean. Um, uh-huh. Still makes me laugh. Yeah. It, oh. It's, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's a bit more accepted here now. Yeah, a little bit. I'm My sure. daughter's generation is not shocked by it. Okay, all right. They use it a lot more freely, mm-hmm. and it's not considered uh, misogynistic, which uh-huh. is, of course, it shouldn't be. It's no more than dick or prick. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's ridiculous. You know, it's just a word. People give words so much power. It's mm-hmm. just, come on. I know, I know. Come on. <laughs> um, well, uh, this episode is not going to come out for a while, unless you've got something super... No, no. I'm be okay. surprised if it comes out at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to come out in a few weeks, so I want to know the where people can. I've f- been talking. <laughs> well, they want. I want them to know where they can find you if you've got anything coming up that they should know about. Uh, where you can find me is probably this summer, mostly in Europe. Um, uh-huh. I um, fingers crossed about going to pre-production on a film. Okay. A film what I wrote. All right. Which is actually a drama. Wonderful. Um, a drama, a sort of a sea biscuit, an English sea biscuit. Okay. It's a lovely, feel good, uh, weepy, um, fun, exciting sports story drama. Um, story of redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And uh, I've got a couple of other things in the works. But I've, I've been actually writing a lot more drama lately, which, is, which has kind of been fun. That's wonderful. Uh, on Not tw- funny, but fun. <laughs> right, right. On Twitter, you are... Or is it, I, I've already forgotten what your handle is. is I am at Real Jim Piddock. Okay. At Real Jim Piddock. As Perfect. opposed to at Fake. Right. Um, I, I've, I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, I, I, it's, it's always fun to talk English comedy because... Americans aren't really picking it. And I would love to talk about it more. Um, well, you guys can follow me on Instagram at Jason Klom, hashtag the professional blur. That's me doing extra work and um, trying to stop doing extra work so I can write a book about it. Come on, just follow me. Do, do something. Help me out. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Music